Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. This is the 397th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Jamie Kreiner, Associate Professor of History at the University of Georgia, who is going to talk uh, with us about how to reduce digital distractions, advice from medieval monks. The history buff for today's show is Terry Topper. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapital. Our producer and engineer, as always, is the esteemed Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we're going to be talking about how to reduce digital distraction, advice from medieval monks with Dr. Jamie Kreiner, Associate Professor of History at the University of Georgia. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Um, so we thought we we might need to do a little bit of background into what a medieval monk's life was like. So can you tell us a bit about uh, who these people are and what their daily life consisted of? Um, so if you're looking at monks from um, roughly the 4th century to the 9th, which is what I um, look at as an early medievalist, um, the short answer is that it totally depends on where you are. Um, diversity was a key feature of monasticism in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, but um, some common threads were that they had decided to give up the usual things that people um, dealt with in life or even enjoyed in life, like work and family and friends and gossip and business dealings, and um, set themselves apart in some way um, to concentrate on God. Um, and usually their lives involved some mix of prayer and manual labor and reading and meditation. Um, but beyond that really general outline, it really kind of depended on the monastery and the monk. Okay, well, Jamie, I, I'm, I'm curious. You apparently, uh, with your expertise, linked um, the life of the medieval monks as they were uh, pouring over uh, and copying texts and what have you with with our uh, obsessive digital life today. Uh, so um, what prompted you to make that linkage? Um. I'm not the first one to point it out. I think a lot of historians who look at monks have noticed how familiar in some ways their um, anxieties about attention and distraction are. Um, I guess it's just that it takes forms that people today might not expect. So we, I, we assume that our um, technological culture gives us a sort of unique experience on these issues. Um, but monks in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages were also worried about information overload. They thought there was way too much to read. Um, they also found themselves kind of wandering off while they were supposed to be working. But instead of checking their phones, they would look outside the window at the sun to see what time it was. Maybe it was closer to um, dinner or bedtime or something else. Um, so in a lot of ways, their anxieties are really strikingly familiar to us. What's more different is just that they had a much more robust system for tackling the problem than we do. How so? How so? Well, um, almost every facet of 
um, their day-to-day lives and schedules and disciplines were in some ways designed to help them concentrate. So okay. to start off with just the whole idea of abandoning the world, um, one of the chief principles underlying that was just that you cut out the things that are um, pulling your attention away from what really matters. Um, and then once you know a monk joined a community or lived in a cell on uh, her own, um, the way that she organized her day-to-day schedule was also um, designed to help her concentrate. So switching up activities rather than doing one thing all day, or um, if you're in a in a communal monastery, the kinds of rules that regulate how you help other monks out or point out their um, failings, there's a sort of sociology to their um, uh, decisions about how to live, but also how to concentrate. Um, And then there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, technical solutions, too, that they had in terms of how they um, wrote and designed their books, how they used their memories, how they thought about prayer. Um, They just had a whole arsenal of techniques uh, that I think are kind of surprising to us. We sort of see ourselves at the mercy of our own concentration or distraction. Sure, sure. Um, Jamie, as you were talking, I was immediately brought back to my uh, my own youth, which is uh, very long ago, uh, far enough back that the digital world didn't exist. And I can remember sitting in school struggling with the same kinds of issues as I was reading your article. I'm like, oh, man, I get that. I absolutely <laughs> understand what that was like and, and how you know enticing it was to, uh, to watch the other kids playing at recess out in the, uh, in the schoolyard when you could be doing something else. Um, were, how, how aware were they as, as an institution of those issues and – how did they develop sort of was was there a a uniform approach or or something that you know I, I guess I'm almost thinking like a manual here's if if I'm the abbot you know here's the things that I'm going to try to help my young monk learn in order to uh, manage those things or were each individual really left to kind of manage the system on their own um, well, as a historian, this is sort of um, a really fun thing to answer because there's just a ton of evidence that monks left behind about how they tackled this problem. There's just tons of sources where um, either a monastic leader or a theorist of monasticism would write a sort of set of um, guidelines or tips or regulations or rules to say, this is how a whole community is going to work. Um, sometimes it was individual letters to monks with specific gripes or problems. Sometimes it's um, hagiographical literature where they encapsulate amongst virtues in um, a biographical narrative and in the process represent their techniques for concentrating or combating distraction. Um, and then there's, yeah, there's, there's manuals like you suggest for more advanced monks in particular where um, there's sort of a, a step-by-step guides for advancing into the more sophisticated techniques. Um, what's clear from all this literature is they definitely don't agree about strategies. (laughs) There's all sorts of uh, debate and disagreement about what really the best technique is um, because the problem is so complicated. And that's really fun, too, to see late antique and early medieval monks kind of um, become a much more complex kind of 
culture than we might assume. This is definitely not a sort of um, monolithic institution by any means. So, so once again, it sounds a lot like modern day. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amy, I was going to ask you that uh, you've, you've uh, uh, highlighted some mechanisms and some sociological uh, approaches to deal with the tedium and the, the mind-numbingness of spending 8, 10, 12 hours, you know, copying something. Uh, and bring it back to modern times, it seems that uh, particularly with the pandemic where we've been cloistered in our, our homes now for at least a year, that uh, yoga has become the, the hot new stress release and uh, uh, strategy for dealing with uh, inner life. Do you see a parallel between the the various uh, rules and regulations that you researched, and the fact that in America we've we've gone to to uh, uh, personal focusing through yoga and things like that. Well, I think it's a really great question because, um, in some ways, yeah, I would agree. The experience of the pandemic has, in some ways, made us more. Uh, alert to both the benefits and the drawbacks of the kinds of strategies that monks adopted. So, you know, with all of us sitting um, hunkered down in our homes, kind of looking out at each other through Zoom, um, it, it sort of shatters the idea that if you put yourself in isolation, that's really going to help you kind of quiet yourself and, you know, maybe attend to the things you've always wanted to get um, cleared off your plate. And monks found the same thing. Every time they came up with a solution or a tactic, um, there was always some kind of um, hidden hidden problem with it. So, you know, you leave the world and go off to a cave. Great. That gets rid of a lot of distractions. It also makes you realize a lot of distractions just come from within. Um, and yeah. a lot of monks actually warned you, um, it, you know, don't don't go into a cave until you're really ready, because otherwise the, the cell will weaponize itself against you and just start throwing distractions out. <laughs> um, so yeah. they were, yeah, and nothing was just a surefire solution. They were always pretty cautious in saying, you know, nothing's going to be the magic pill that fixes all of this. You have to be careful at every step to see what the problems are that they entail. Yes, what is old is new and what is new is old. Well, we have a lot more to talk about. So please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. 
Our guest for today's show is Dr. Jamie Kreiner, Associate Professor of History at the University of Georgia, and we'll be talking about her article, How to Reduce Digital Distraction, Advice for Medieval Monks. Our history buff for today's show is Terry Toppler. Terry is a retired librarian who dealt with a lot of technologically distracted people in small caves called libraries. You get the first question. <laughs> Thank you. Well, even more so since the pandemic, because I've been helping my grandson, who's in first grade, um, with online work. And yes, definitely there's a focus problem when he's lying on the couch after 45 minutes of a Google Meets and it's like, Grandma, I can't take anymore. Anyway, that's from, coming from a six-year-old. But anyway, <laughs> um, I read that... Um, you stated that the meditating mind was not to be at ease, but was to be energized. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, meditation for monks was not about um, seeking stillness. It was about taking a particular concept and kind of gathering from other places in your memory and your memory of things, not re not so much what, what had happened to you, but of the other things that you've read and the commentaries on those things that you'd read and stitching them together to come to a richer, deeper idea about the thing that you were meditating on. Um, it could be a really simple concept um, like um, an insect or a worm. It could be something bigger like justice or humility. Um, but the idea was that a monk would um, start moving through all of this material to try to come to um, a kind of insight. Um, so it's it, it's partly creative thinking. It's partly just a disciplined way of kind of reviewing what it is that you know. Um, and the idea in part was that as you are doing all of this active work, you can't help but concentrate. So um, it's, it's connecting the monk um, with God, who is the source of all truth. And by giving the mind a little bit of of what it likes, which is to move around and to explore, you help to keep it from wandering off too much into the deep end. <laughs> um, Jamie, I'm I'm interested, so I'm trying to make parallels with with modern um, with our modern situations. Um, so, take something like social media. Um, obviously, we don't have smartphones in the early Middle Ages, but is there some equivalent sort of situation that the monks would have dealt with, and how would they have responded to that? Um, that's great. Yeah, I think there's probably two close equivalents. One is the monastery itself. It's a new form of social organization in late antiquity, and one of the benefits that it promises is to bring like-minded people together for a common enterprise uh, that's mutually supportive. Um, but on the flip side, other monks can totally distract you, um, and there's great material in the monastic rules, um, really, that were written from Iran to Ireland about the kinds of things monks did to distract each other, not necessarily intentionally, but, you know, like in church, they would kind of giggle and make each other laugh, or they would fall asleep, or they would um, move around because they didn't want to fall asleep, um, or they would cough or snore or spit, um, you know, just a few examples. But so that's, I think, a pretty close approximation of some of the problems that we encountered with social media. And then from the tech side, um, definitely books 
would count as a problematic technology for monks. They were immensely useful, of course. Um, Christianity is based in scriptures, um, and in addition to reading scriptures, um, immersion in exegetical commentaries was really important. Um, but books also could kind of tempt monks to get either too much into reading, where it was really more about the pleasure of reading than about moving beyond the reading to contemplation of God, or books could just be so boring <laughs> that you kind of wandered off and started counting the pages until to see how much you had left, um, or you'd just doze off. Um, so I don't think that they would have been at all surprised by the kind of struggles that we have now. Jamie, I'm going to follow up on that for a second, because as you were talking, the, the, uh, the book, The Name of the Rose, came to, to, my, to my mind, and the, the basic plot of that book is that you have a forbidden uh, classical text on humor that the monks are passing around, and there's one particular conservative monk who believes that they're being led astray and creates all sorts of problems. Was that an issue too? Did we have certain texts that were floating around that were, you know, just the subject matter was perhaps a little bit distracting? Yeah, I mean, monks had been ambivalent kind of since the beginning about. Um, the inheritance of classical literature, um, they didn't reject it. They just thought, you know, if you if you were just reading that to the exclusion of other things, that was definitely problematic. So um, it was it was they had this goal of incorporating it into you know um, reading and meditating that could be useful. Um, they, you know, the consensus among historians is that they tended to complain about inappropriate texts more than actually rejecting or not reading them entirely. So it was sort of like they just needed to come with a cautionary label. Um, like this, this is something that, you know, we may not agree with in all the particulars, but it is also full of useful information. So reader beware. Jamie, uh, you mentioned uh, there were efforts um, to uh, deal with the distraction that the medieval monks um uh, uh, had in terms of doing a good job at recording and copying these texts. Uh, how successful, from in your research, were you able to find uh, out how successful some of these strategies were to reduce distraction? Um, in terms of their success rate, I, I think that would be hard to determine. What I can say is that, um, you know, the modern... Modern practitioners of ancient and medieval mnemonic techniques find that they work extremely well. Um, but on the flip side, with every technique that monks had, they complained that it wasn't ever surefire. So it was always going to help, but not completely. Um, they did develop a lot of um, book technologies, for example, that even if they didn't totally keep them from having their minds wander, definitely helped other readers enough that they became kind of entrenched parts of the book copying system. So, for example, um, rubricating a page, dividing it up so that people could see sort of clearly um, when a topic changed or when a new speaker uh, was introduced um, or when a particular theme was recurring. Um, those kinds of, of techniques we still in some form practice today, like, you know, chapter headings or um, even our own making notes in the margins. Um, they got even more creative with, with the texts of, um, that they were copying in their books than we tend to for formatting today. So they might 
write a text in such a way as that it sort of conveyed some some big idea that it was associated with. So a famous example is um, the Chronicle of Eusebius that got split into um, multiple columns to show, um, you know, all of these different parallel histories um, that predate the Roman Empire. Um, this The early Middle Ages is also the time when um, glossed commentaries of the Bible get developed into these cool page formattings that you know, have a central biblical text in the middle, all sorts of commentaries in the margins, um, and that the particular formatting helps a monk not only see the information more clearly and um, get more of the marrow out of it, um, but also to retain it for later because the format in some ways conveys the message. Okay, Terry. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I think about today where I truly wonder if we have more of a problem with focusing because of our technology. Um, I had what came to mind as you were speaking was the book, The Shallows by Nicholas Carr, who talks about the plasticity of our brain and how we actually tend to rewire our brain when we're sitting in front of a computer screen for too long, that it makes it even more difficult for us to focus on pages, printed pages. And so my question is, you know, are there strategies today that we could use to help bring back our focus with the printed word? I mean, I think even the basic recognition of cognitive plasticity is really important, that recognizing that, you know, um, although the, the brain is very special, it's also like other parts of our body that can be trained to um, perform more highly um, rather than, you know, just sort of assuming, oh, my memory isn't very good. I guess that's that. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, and so, yeah, I mean, one of the messages I think that early medieval monasticism offers is that, you know, improving your concentration isn't just about sort of this sort of metacognitive move where you tell yourself, focus more, focus more, but it's about sort of a range of more integrated practices where you're thinking about how you manage your work day and the people you talk to and what you're doing with your body, how are you eating and sleeping, um, how, you know, what kinds of approaches do you take when you sit down to read something, when you try to retain it, when you think about it later, when you try to connect the little picture to the big picture. Um, it's the range of, of different practices would certainly give a lot of people today a lot of material to play with, but I think it's also a good reminder that it's not just about sort of talking yourself out of distraction. There's a lot of different um, angles that are worth trying. Um, Jamie, Jamie the, oh, go uh, ahead, Rick. The, the, you mentioned the, the distractions and the giggling and the falling asleep and whatever. Um, and you talked about the, the um, sketchy success on some of these strategies. What kind of turnover did you find where, you know, I'm not going to embellish that a monk went nuts and went (laughs) running, screaming from the (laughs) monastery, but was was, was there an attrition rate that you found that, you know, that uh, they just, they couldn't take it anymore? Well, I couldn't give you um, numeric figures because the early data isn't really adequate for it, but there was definitely a lot of monks who quit. 
Um, some of them came back and then quit again and, and was sort of on a cycle. Some of them um, would become a monk for a few years and then go on to other ecclesiastical careers. It was really common for um, bishops to be um, to see monasticism as essential sort of training. Um, it was also common for there to be a kind of revolving door with um, elite persons in power. So, um, you know, sometimes if there was um, uh, a kind of coup and a, and a family was ousted from power, they would be sent to a monastery as a form of exile. And then if, you know, the winds changed for them politically, they might leave the monastery again and go back to governance. Um, there, you know, <laughs> there were all sorts of people entering and leaving monasteries constantly. It's, it's pretty unusual um, to hear the stories about the uh, ones who always stayed, in part because there's less of a story to tell, so it's hard to know what was more typical. Um, but sure. we know that there were also people who were, you know, mm. um, monks since childhood um, and just stayed. All right. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. Jamie, why do you think knowing about how people in the Middle Ages dealt with distraction is relevant in today's world? Um, I think it's really cool to see a group of people who were as worried about this problem as we are today, but who gave a lot more thought to how to combat it. Um, so they offer a kind of surprising treasury of of tools that are still, so many of which are still worth trying today. Some of them we probably wouldn't. Probably wouldn't advise everybody to just give up everything. And that's how you focus. Although some people could do that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask, we've got a, a minute or two left, so I'm hoping this can be a fairly quick question. Um, you were talking about memory devices, and I loved in your article, uh, because I am a middle school teacher, and have absolutely used this and know that it works. Um, you talked about using uh, gore or basically shock or, or disturbing imagery or whatever as a way of memorizing things or, or helping you focus a little bit more. Can you talk a little bit ab about that before we uh, leave this segment? Yeah, if you sort of try to distill some things you want to remember into a set of kind of cartoonish figures that can sort of be animated in your mind doing things to each other, where you sort of condense a lot of information into a set of symbols, um, it can be a really helpful way to keep track of them. Um, it helps, too, if you imagine them in a kind of, to use a more modern um, example of a form of a graphic novel where there's um, they're taking place, there's actions taking place in discrete frames, um, and you see them moving right um, well, left to right, if you're an English reader, um, it, the, the form of movement and also spatial anchoring is a really effective way um, to recall things that would be harder if they remained abstract. Excellent. Well, when we come back, we will wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant, 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 397th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song of our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapity. My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Jamie Kreiner, Associate Professor of History at the University of Georgia, who talked with us about her article, How to Reduce Digital Distraction, Advice from Medieval Monks, the history buff for to today's show was Terry Topper. This is ROI Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed, expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.